Yeah, we uh, we were a mixed bag on that, as the scholars discussed it, uh, for two reasons. I really appreciate you asking me that, Maurice, because uh, as the as the listener, the viewer knows, you know, gratitude, injury, and repair in a pandemic age, and then there's a colon there. We've added uh, yeah, uh, an interreligious dialogue. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen, an attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk. Okay, good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And actually, I'm really delighted with today's guest who will introduce himself. But before he does, um, I'm, I'm really super excited about this particular episode because this is actually the episode that for the first time I'm you know, talking with a guest for the second time. Ooh. And um, I will tell you in, in a bit when that was. But uh, first, let's... Uh, me asked to introduce you to my guest michael please go ahead well thank you maurice it's um i mean it's a privilege to be here for a second time uh with a colleague and a friend and uh it's nice to count you as both we've known each other for a couple of decades and these have been really productive decades for me uh in my life i'm uh serving as the spare halligan professor and the founding director at the center for ecumenical and interreligious engagement at Seattle University in the Pacific Northwest in the United States, uh, perched right on the, uh, let's see, west, uh, northwest coast of the, of the country, in a place uh, in, the, in this part of the country, which is, I would say, um, you see a little bit of everything here in terms of where people are politically, uh, socially, um, from the far left to the far right on any particular uh, policy issue or economic issue or or social issue in and of itself, so uh, or a religious-based issue. So to have a center of this kind here means that we're exposed to a lot of, kind of drift of different kinds of perspectives that have significant global influence. So it's a pretty exciting place to be. Hmm. No, and, and I can attest to that. Um, actually, the... The last 100-mile walk that I did um, uh, in 2023, around uh, the beginning of April, I did do that in your area in Seattle. So it's it's absolutely uh, true what you're saying. Um, you know, you I, I was alluding to that. You know, you and I we talked with each other already in October of 2020. Yeah. Um, and that was uh, yeah for the per- first time as part of of this podcast. And yeah. uh, and I remember, and maybe some of our listeners uh, still recall that you compared the hundred mile at that time with a pilgrimage, which right. uh, during which the deeper walk into the interior of the self is even more important. And yeah. then you also explained that we all need wonder and awe for growth, and the younger generation is also aware of this. And and you know you work a lot with this younger generation, even though the younger generation might not express it overtly. You also mentioned that all people should be allowed to walk unhindered. 
Yeah. And when they can't, we need to stand in solidarity with them. So my, my question, the first question that I would like to ask you, uh, Michael, is um, did COVID cause, at least for a period, the whole of humanity to be hindered in their ability to walk? And what impact did it have on you, your center and your students? And I know we ultimately will go to the book that you and, and me as well are very excited about it, that it's coming. Uh, is published uh, and, and will be quickly available. But yeah, yeah. we're excited. We're excited too. I mean, we're thrilled by it. It was like climbing uh, a mountain uh, more than a walk. Although when you were out here, and so the listener knows, I mean, you walk 100 miles, it addresses world hunger. And the moguls in this area, the Pacific Northwest, that come through for the last ice age, it carved out all of these mountains in the area are um, pretty formidable. So that was quite a Quite a walk. I mean, I really, I, mean, I really commend you, Maurice. I didn't join you in that walk, but I, um, you know, kudos from afar uh, for doing that in particular. A lot has changed um, since uh, our last conversation, and and I'll just put some statistics out there that that come to my mind as we're as we're discussing. You know, in April of 2020, um, the 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 COVID nineteen crisis, the virus itself killed twice as many people in the United States. It's over 130,000 people as the total accounted deaths um, from uh, the Vietnam War uh, in, in and of itself. That's 58,000 uh, who died in, in, in Vietnam, American uh, service men and women. We don't have to just stay with that number alone. By, by 2023, by 2023, 1.1 million uh, uh, U.S. Had, had died and millions uh, around, around the world. Uh, the mortality rate in the U.S. itself, uh, due to another significant metric, has, um, has also gone down. And, uh, you know, uh, sometimes we develop a kind of existential amnesia about what's happened, uh, just, you know, staying within the limits of U.S. society uh, for a moment, although we don't have to. But we forget about how much we've been imperiled and impacted by uh, a global emergency, a global health emergency, and what that virus has meant to, in terms of um, uh, our socioeconomic self-determination, our sense of um, of, uh, of psychological safety, for instance, and and I think we also uh, need to recognize that um, that that our experience of a pandemic age of COVID nineteen um, is not restricted only to COVID nineteen to this to this point about what we've what we've experienced. Mm -hmm. And if you'll recall, in March of twenty twenty, the World Health Organization identified. A global health emergency at that time, but we had already uh, in the U.S. again witnessed the the murders of Ahmad Aubrey and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, uh, and that had already happened. And there was a proven global response, uh, in particular, to the murder of George Floyd at that time, and and that was all happening simultaneously. So there was a a resounding response to structural racism, which was taking place at the same time that uh, that we were witnessing uh, the rise of this uh, global virus and. And that, um, that may have felt to millions uh, like the wheels were coming off society at that time. It was, it was a time that created uh, a lot of what later manifested as clinical uh, depression uh, that we're still uh, dealing with today. And so our center, um, like families and individuals, um, but in particular, our center was at the axis of being able to provide uh, a response to this, and um, that drew us into a study uh, that we uh, that we addressed in terms of injury and repair uh, in a pandemic age, which is what we 
began to call what we were experiencing uh, this this pandemic age that was seemingly uh, saturating our our lived experience in in those years. So you started to reach out, um, you know, and and talk with with students, um, and you know that ultimately led uh, to the book. But um, and I, I think one of the reasons that uh, you know you decided to write this book and tell me if I'm wrong is that to identify these patterns, right? And you 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 know you were you guys were thinking, oh, we are we I. Yeah, we are identifying something that is really valuable ultimately for humanity to you know, to realize for the now as well as the future. Is is that correct? I think that's I think that's right. I mean, we we had received a grant from the Henry Luce Foundation to pursue a particular topic of study related to um, the human response to suffering and how different religious traditions, religious traditions, philosophical worldviews, and spiritual pathways, how all of the sacred texts from oral tradition or written tradition, you know, all the different rituals across time, how they responded to human suffering. So when human beings experience suffering, what is it in texts, uh, stories, which is what those holy scriptures are for many religions and many pathways across time. They really are an echo that we have sent ourselves over these ages that are responding to the suffering that we've endured. So what are those texts as an echo telling us about our own response to, the, to, the, to that suffering? In, in some ways, it's a, it's a self-medication. You know, what are we suggesting to ourselves? And, and if you make space for mystery in existence, what many of these traditions call the transcendent, you know, that which isn't just exhausted by our own human experience, or what many would call, say, even God, or a sense of deity, or a sense of wonder in the cosmos, then what is our relationship to that transcendent, to that mystery? And that opens the possibility of saying, well, what is the response of that mystery to our suffering? That's also important. So those two things we wanted to study. What's the human response to suffering? Mm-hmm. And if you will, what's the the response of mystery to human suffering. So that was going to be the book. And then we encountered a a global pandemic. Mm. And suffering became not only tangible and real, but we were tracking um, the the rate of death uh, all around us at an extraordinary rate that was impacting people's lives, Mm -hmm. that was... um, uh, that was also impacting the way they were thinking. It was slowing down their creative processing and, and capacities. It was uh, having an impact on uh, marginalized communities, in particular on on those coming from socioeconomically depressed regions uh, in in this country, in the U.S. and in the world. Um, we were able to track this, and because of that, the study uh, slowly started to turn from um something that felt a, certainly a, a lot you know a lot more ethereal to um to 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 uh the reality of of overburdened uh, hospitals to uh whole families losing their lives and um and to the loss of um of significant uh, stability in communities so this became very real and our study then turned toward 
how we understand injury and repair in a pandemic age, uh, which included a virus, but was complicated by other factors and other features that weren't exhausted by a virus, and yet were also simultaneously inclusive of it in those features. That was okay. the study. Hmm. And and can you tell us then about uh, the themes, or I, I, I think maybe you call it features in, in the book? Um, what did you identify? Um, sure. And it may, maybe, you know, give us, walk us through the through the book without giving out too much. I mean, people, we want people to buy it and read it. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Well, we have, we had 13 scholars from mm -hmm. uh, two continents and uh, various religious traditions and backgrounds. So they're, they're professors and practitioners who wrote uh, chapters in the book. And uh, that book is being published through Georgetown University Press. It's available in, in uh, 2024 in June. So we're, we're thrilled that it's coming out. We think it will be, uh, you know, of service to uh, local communities and contexts, to universities and, and to individuals around. And if I could say a word about some of the features, I think, rather than moving through the specific chapters. Um, sure. Yeah. I think one of the things that we learned, if I could just say about uh, a pandemic age, because we really coined that term in the, in the text, we didn't want to just talk about a virus. Um, we wanted to talk about the impact of the virus. And we had some preliminary conversations about other major global emergencies. It taught us a lot about uh, other times, uh, the access of major uh, uh, global events of this kind. And the first that we noticed that both includes and transcends a virus of this kind is that, you, you know, when you have a, in a moment in the world like this, suddenly everything around you becomes unpredictable and um, and seemingly incalculable, which is to say that the normalcy patterns, the, the ways that you thought about the world and your assumptions about how everything works, um, suddenly becomes upended. Uh, the, the, there's a kind of intractability of an endemic state that you can't just wake up the next morning and remove from you. And the suffering becomes entrenched. But at the same time, the virus of this kind, uh, you can't reason with it. Uh, it's not something that has any kind of moral agency. It, it doesn't really want to harm you or not want to harm you. It just simply is. And, and that, that change uh, to the sense of normalcy and not being able to reason with it, that kind of introduction of an irrational and unpredictable element in everyday life is unnerving to a society that is governed by systems. We're all governed by systems, whether it's our um, circulatory system running in our body or the systems of uh, economy that govern our everyday lives. All of those uh, become disrupted by um, the um, uh, the virus and by the associated maladies that uh, come alongside a virus. And that is um, that is a feature of a virus that is often downplayed, that is uh, part of a of, of a of, of a viral scenario itself, but is often underscored. So that's I'd say that's a first feature. The second feature is just simply, the experience of death itself, its 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 magnitude, some of which I already identified before in terms of some of those numbers, so I won't um, belabor that again. But the, uh, the fact is that we have experienced a significant amount of loss, and it's changed us. Uh, it's also changed um, the way that we return uh, to any kind of um, work or family or social uh, scenarios. I'm in a university. Students show up, you know, uniquely and differently now. Um, 
We uh, we also know that in universities and in uh, nonprofit industries, for profit industries, in religious um, contexts as well, wherever we are in public spaces, there's a lot more uh, time and attention spent on clinical care. That's another feature I can I can mention mention in a in a in a moment. I think um, one of the one of the more pressing features that that we noticed and that is evident in the book is is simply the rise of um, uh, in our age of of hate groups and uh, and scapegoating in the world. And you may say, well, gosh, what does this have to do with a virus? Uh, this age has been infused with just a tremendous amount of stress. And when people feel uncertain, when when life feels incalculable, um, there's a lot of scapegoating that happens. You know, when people feel repressed, they often act out. Uh, I think of um, in May 2020, the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres uh, noted that the pandemic uh, continued to leash, uh, unleash a tsunami of um, of hate and xenophobia and scapegoating. He was right about that, and we saw statistics in the study of the kind of rise of hate speech that continues to go up uh, from Brazil to the U.S. to uh, to the U.K. Uh, by um, significant percentages, and in one case over three hundred percent from um, from from numbers in in, in twenty nineteen. The Southern Poverty Law Center, which tracks uh, these kinds of movements from anti-Asian uh, 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 rhetoric to uh, anti-Semitism, has seen the rise of this happening as well. So that's a feature that we would attribute to this pandemic age. Uh, we see it as correlated to it, uh, and um, and it's it's concerning to society. Now, listen, Maurice. Some some things we notice are also. You know, maybe less tractable. Um, mm-hmm. you, you may recall that there was a lot of acting out on airlines, for instance, in 2021, 2022, when people started kind of getting back on airlines. We know that those numbers are going down again uh, as of the winter of 2024. That's good. That's good to see it, but there's had to be a lot. We've seen a lot more of kind of heavy regulation in some cases to make it, to incentivize people uh, to act in, um, in, in ways that are less, uh, you know, less violent or obtrusive on a, on an airline. If I could just name one more feature, mm-hmm. I think it's something I alluded to before. We see it. Um, you know, I'm so proud of of our of our students and of this generation Z. I have to say, like, I think they're a robust, creative um, a generation with tr- tremendous ingenuity, and and um, I, I think that they are leading and will continue to lead in, in very profound ways. I'm happy to say more about that as well. But there's also no doubt that they took up the brunt of this uh, in terms of impact because they spent two, two and a half years, many of them, uh, if they were fortunate, uh, in their rooms um, on screens getting an education. And that doesn't say much about the generation coming up. Those who were you know, five, six, seven, when all this came through, we'll know more about that generation later. But there is a well-documented corollary in the rise of clinical depression and heightened suicidal ideation and hospitalization at a soberingly uh, high rate for these younger ages. We've seen it, uh, and we see it also. Uh, we know that that is also uneven. For instance, that correlation is higher for African-American youth and for Latinx youth who identify in the LGBTQIA plus uh, community. That's, that's true as well. And we're, we're aware that uh, we, as a society, um, and this is a true, as I think of my center's work across religions, where we care, all of us really, you know, we, we're, we're asked to care and uh, provide protection for 
for one another and for uh, for one another's kids in all of these communities across generations. And this one, this feature in particular, is one that we should all be, I would say, very attentive to. Um, I, I, I think I mentioned to you recently, I, I, was, in, I was in Scotland, it was in, it was in Edinburgh, and I met uh, a, uh, an engineer, she's Scottish, uh, practicing Hindu, and she was telling me about her 15-year-old son who was experiencing uh, depression. She could have been any, uh, any mother from any number of communities that I've met around, around the world with 15-year-olds precisely in this demographic. So we need to be really attentive to how this pandemic is impacting this age group and to take seriously feelings of isolation and helplessness at a time that, uh, that they felt that profoundly and the impact mm-hmm. of the pandemic on their lives. Yeah, no, th- thanks, uh, Michael, for, for sharing that. Um, I, I, when I was listening to you, I was, yeah, I realized again. You know, I, I think one of the the things that we have learned from this pandemic is that everything is interconnected. And I would like to piggyback later on with you on that. Um, first, a question about the title. You know, I had a, a teacher. Um, of the Dutch language, you always said, you know, the title is the best summary. A good title is the best summary. Um, so, yeah. So, did you come up with a good title? And is it indeed, a, you know, a, a good summary of, of what the book is about? And um, gratitude, injury, and repair in a pandemic age, right? Yeah, we. Uh... We were a mixed bag on that, as the scholars discussed it, uh, for two reasons. I really appreciate you asking me that, Maurice, because uh, as the as the listener, the viewer knows, you know, gratitude, injury, and repair at a pandemic age, and then there's a colon there. We've added a, 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 an interreligious dialogue, and so let me take uh, let me take gratitude first. Um, the whole sense of uh, why would that be uh, why would that be associated with anything having to do with a global emergency and um that's a that's a very good question and i think that the the reality is that um it's certainly not a, a gratitude for a, a a pandemic or for suffering at all the question is what's the nature by which uh as one of the authors placed it um gratitude within one's community for community um the, the place in which i return to uh, a space in which I have a, a level of of joy and belonging in which I cherish uh, the, the special and uh, essential relationships all around me that I feel a deep and abiding gratefulness for. That kind of gratitude. Not, not kind of flimsy happiness, if I can call it that, or superficial happiness, but mm-hmm. a sense of deep and abiding uh, gratefulness or gratitude that is part of the sinews of um, the way in which I live my life every day. Um, that's what's meant by gratitude. And one of the authors refers to this form of gratitude then as a, as, a, as a way of shaping resistance, actually. Gratitude is a form of resistance uh, against those kinds of narratives or stories in the culture that would uh, be f- forms of repression. And he's writing from what many in society or in the university might call a minoritized 
perspective. So he's writing from a perspective that's kind of non-majoritarian, not coming from this majoritarian or the spaces in society that hold most of the power. So he's writing from a perspective more on the margins, where gratitude itself is a like an adhesive, like a glue inside of his community and the communities that he's associating with that draws a kind of together its own power that being grateful within one's own community is a way of responding to um, other forms of power that would be more repressive. It's an interesting argument, I think, in that chapter that um, reconfigures how we think about the nature of being grateful in our lives. I think that's interesting. I mean, isn't it true? I mean, it's really, there are some words that, that shape us, like what I cherish in my life and what you cherish in your life more recently, family, friendships, the really close relationships, the real values that matter, the ones that are unretractable, that you wouldn't, that you wouldn't let go of. And we, we have all those things that we kind of get swayed by in life that go back and forth, that move us like the wind. But these are the three or four values, the three or four relationships by which we feel nothing but gratitude for and that keep us um, rooted or buoyant or um, satisfied and fulfilled and give us a horizon of hope in the world. That's what we're talking about with gratitude. That's the first one. The second is um, uh, the title actually was going to be uh, in the middle part, Injury and Restoration. Mm -hmm. And some of the scholars said, you know, uh, restoration isn't the right word. We're in the middle of a global emergency. Millions of people are perishing and all around the world. And uh, what we're learning in all of this, as we know with this pandemic, what surfaced was a tremendous amount of uneven distribution of, of this pandemic. A lot of people who, who perished, a lot of black and brown bodies that died first uh, in this pandemic around the world. And so there was a sense in which restoring some former structures uh, didn't make any sense. Whereas this title may have been used without any question, even six months before, the pandemic had impacted uh, our humanity so much that those scholars said, uh, that's not going to work for us anymore. Restoring something so broken won't work, but what if we could repair? And that's how that title changed to um, injury and repair. It's interesting how fast mm. that, that change took place. And then, of course, as I mentioned, um, the pandemic age, that we were not just living through one thing but many things like a poly crisis or a kind of mm. um, a, a number of a manifestation of things all happening at once. And that it was difficult at that time. It may be easier for us now, Maurice, but it was difficult at that time. It's like swimming through wet cement to be able to say we're, we're experiencing one thing. And I think even finally, even as we were doing this, and maybe, maybe the listener and viewer felt this at the same time. There were a couple of years there where, it was it's harder to get up in the morning sometimes, even though we all had to. There was maybe just a couple months. You know, there was there was a um, slower cognitive and emotional processing. Uh, the, this was you know this was something that um, that was evident in in scholarship as well. People were paying attention to this. When you're under duress, um, it's harder from 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 multiple sides at once. It's harder to process the information in a cognitive and an emotional and psychological way. And so the pandemic as an age felt like that. And I think that's why that title stuck. Okay. Yeah. Can, can I jump to, because you used the word polycrisis, can I jump there or are you still want to sure, add no, something around the title? 
But perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, both of us, we we have talked when we are, you know, talking about the pandemic, what's going on. Uh, both of us have talked about this polycrisis, and and you know, it's something that the philosophers Edgar Morin and and Richard Kern came up with, right? Yeah. Um, but more recently, I've heard, you know, hmm, maybe the polycrisis doesn't capture it anymore. What we are dealing with is an existential crisis. Well, what are your thoughts when you hear me say that? Yeah, Morin and Kern in 1993, uh, you know, philosophers, I know the World Health Organization has mm -hmm. picked this up too. It's the sense uh, for the, you know, for the, for the listener and viewer, the sense that we, if we have so many crises, uh, they start to uh, intertwine and become uh, intractable for one another. So, for instance, and we get problems, right? Yeah, we have problems. Yeah, yeah as you yeah. mentioned, so you know, a, a global crisis on hunger and poverty and a climate crisis are connected um, uh, geopolitically. When we start to see, you know, the Russian invasion of, of the Ukraine uh, and the breadbasket in that part of the world is being impacted, you can see how that is a part of uh, a contributing factor to the poly crisis. I, uh, I mean, we've known each other a long time. I think, uh, I, I certainly agree with you that the poly crisis, the poly crises that we're experiencing in the world are part of a deeper uh, existential uh, crisis that we in our humanity are experiencing. And, and I, th I think that most people who are watching this are attuned to that truth too and they feel it at their marrow they know that what we're enduring and undergoing today um we can point to these different tributaries all around us that challenge us like a climate change like world hunger and those are scary enough but it spills out into something that feels like a much deeper lock or body of water and if you go down further and try to plumb the depths of that, I think that's that existential crisis that you're referring to deep down. It seems to me that that's the space in those colder, darker waters that we have to interrogate and resolve. And I think we actually have the resources to do it. I firmly do believe that. Uh, and I think we've been able to do that actually historically in the past as well. It's just that we're in a position right now in the world where we're on a, a time limit and we have some significant uh, work, inner work to do to be able to get there. But I'd, I'd be interested to ask you as we're talking about this, as you've asked me that question existentially, if I may ask you how you would answer that question too. Such an important question. So, so um, no, I, I, I don't disagree with everything uh, you said, and I would, I would answer your question with a, a, a quote, but it's also, a, a, also a question to you. Um, so, um, I'm reading at the, at the moment a, a book, uh, Michael. It's, it's um, the moves that matter, and um, it's actually written by a, a former chess grandmaster. Jonathan Rosen, and um, the, the reason that I'm reading the book is that you know my my eldest son is really hooked to chess, 
And um, what I like about this particular book is, you know, he's also hooked to chess. He's very passionate about it. But then he's using chess to talk about uh, life. Um, and in his book, in his fifth chapter, he uh, quotes... Um, okay, now I have to find it. He quotes uh, Bohm and um, the philosopher and physicist mm -hmm. David Bohm. Mm -hmm. And... Um, what he's saying is, you know, Bohm is alluding uh, to our need to get better at thinking about thought without being run by thought. Mm. To find a vantage point outside whatever systems, effects, associations, and language forms are shaping our idea of what is happening. The essence of our thinking challenge today is that the world's problems are profoundly interconnected. But our ways of knowing and acting on them are fragmented. And our ways of knowing are fragmented partly because we are not trained to think of how things connect from a young age. If anything, the inclination is trained out of us. Academic progression, alas, is a function of specialization, not integration. So, you know, I, I try to make the link here with the interconnectedness. Uh, that was mentioned before. Yeah, what is your first reaction? I'm just making a note here. It's so important. Um, I think my my first my my first reaction is uh, um, well, two. The the. The systems, I would just go back to a systems assessment real quick, and the, the way that we've chosen to govern ourselves in the world in this kind of cognitive assessment that you're giving, this kind of way in which we've thought ourselves into this place, is, um, is multi-generational and it is layered. And reconfiguring that is not going to be as easy as simply changing our thinking or uh, readdressing a policy uh, or uh, ending a particular injustice. The hard work is uh, taking seriously the impact of our history. So for instance, and, and the history on that cognitive advance in our systems. So for instance, at the end of the Thirty Years' War, we had the Treaty of Westphalia and the beginning of the understanding of the sovereignty of nation-states. That sense of the sovereignty of nation-states leads to our um, the advent, ultimately, after World War II, of the United Nations. And in 1946, we have the Charter of the United Nations, which was signed. That charter was supposed to put an end to armed conflict, as we had hoped, in the modern world. Since that time, we've seen over 260 armed conflicts, including major armed conflicts, including the armed conflicts we are seeing today. So that's a broken system. That hasn't worked well. And part of the problem that we're enduring is that we have unenforceable mandates around some of the major crises that we're seeing, including changing climate, where a world needs to change uh, and address the, these challenge points with a kind of nimbleness, but we're unable to do that 
because we're not able to enforce the kinds of mandates that we need to, such as through the Paris Accords or say COP28. We're not able to do that as effectively as we'd like to internationally because we have systems that govern, in this case, going back to the Treaty of Westphalia, a sense of sovereignty and those systems in that regard are fairly porous. So cognitively, we know we need to make certain kinds of changes. The systems we've placed in place over 300 plus years are less nimble. So what we have that governs us are systems that are problematic and challenge points that are right in front of us and um, a retreating time window. That's complicated. It means that we have to become creative and we have to become, we have to endure with a kind of creative ingenuity um, and innovation that uh, is able in some way to uh, transcend and um, the barriers that we're experiencing that are um, inside those systems that are governing the kind of cognitive processes that are less than porous. You see what I mean so far? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I when I'm listening to you, uh, Michael, I, I have to think about Einstein. Um, basically, was he was right when he said we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking that caused them. Precisely that. And and and. Um, so how do we do that? I mean, yeah. You you mentioned you mentioned uh, creative innovation, right? Creative innovation yeah, is one is one kind of strategy for doing that. I mean, I think mm -hmm. another is uh, is the global movement for doing the inner work, the serious inner work of our uh, of developing inner development goals. Mm -hmm. um, we've talked often about the sustainable development goals, the seventeen goals that need to be yeah. you know pretty well harnessed and 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 uh, with a certain success ratio by twenty thirty. But we know that we're um, far behind. For some of the same reasons, I would say that we've just discussed that we have a less nimble aptitude for actually completing or creating that a certain reaching a certain success ratio for those particular goals. So why is that? Well, we have to find another means. What's really stalling us? It's not just those systems. Um, it's not just our cognitive processes as well. And it goes back to your question existentially. What's at the bottom of that lock? What needs to be addressed? And I would say. The inner development goals then is the response that you see globally. You know a lot more about that than I do as you're working in that field. And that kind of sense of inner development um, where we're working collaboratively, hmm. where we're assessing what is the kind of inner work psychologically, spiritually, psychosocially that uh, does allow us to create, again, that word sinew, a kind of sinew of collaborative opportunity that I think does pair nicely then, if I could say more about creative innovation. What's required in the world is a kind of collaborative convergence that transcends a lot of the complexity that we say today. So see, see today. So what does that mean? It means that we have an opportunity to work together, to partner, uh, to discover new ways of engaging that crosses disciplines, that crosses respective industries, um, that crosses for-profit and non-profit. And there, there are a lot of very talented people right now out there in the world who are doing this, who have nimble minds, who are able to think about the ways in which, you know, it's, it's, an, it's, it's as easy as really transcending the confines of our own ego and recognizing 
that the kind of collaboration we're talking about, the kind of fierce creative collaboration allows us to address major challenge points around um, uh, hunger and poverty and a changing climate requires these industries to converge at creative points, to transcend the myopia or the limited ways in which they typically do no a business as, as normal and to fast track toward specific solutions. And we see that happening. We see fast tracks in particular areas because they're able to transcend the kind of egomaniacal, uh, ego-related aspects of their own particular industry for the good of our shared humanity. And that sense of transcending happens when we recognize that, for instance, eureka moments uh, are not solitary things. All of our eureka moments, all of our discoveries that have meant anything really for humanity have been collaborative. They're cooperative mm -hmm. ventures. Right? They require many of us to show up, to witness, to work together. And that kind of innovation where we're collaborating together on major problems, where we're working out the complexities externally because internally in our inner development, we believe that collaboration in and of itself is hardy, is essential, as, as an aspect of our humanity, that, that insofar as we're addressing those external challenges, we're working out our internal good. And both of those are mutually transformational. We're transforming our inner world at the same time that we are with humility, finally with humility, open to being transformed and transforming the external world as well. That may sound like a lot of 35,000 foot elevation language, but uh, that's the kind of creative innovation I believe needs to happen in very particular granular ways in industry today. Hmm. Um, no, thanks, thanks, Michael. Um, I, I would like to, you know, these conversations always go fast. I have, I have two last questions for you. Yeah. Um, you, you know, the, the question that I'm going to ask you first is, what people always consider the most difficult one when I, you know, link uh, our conversation with music. Um, yeah. If you, if I ask you to describe the book with a song or a piece of music, what song or piece of music will you name and why? Oh, I uh, I really like. Um, remember Tears for Fears? Everybody wants to rule the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, they changed. Uh, they changed the, that last rule to something. Everybody wants to um, to run the world. Yeah, everybody wants to run the world. I think they got that wrong. They softened it too much. The, the fact of the matter is, everybody there. There are too many people who want to rule the world, and um, and and that's actually the obverse or the op opposite of what we really really require. I've always loved that song, but I'm also Gen X. I was around when it came out in 1985, 84. And I thought it was pretty cool when I had blue hair and it was spiked and life was <laughs> um, and we were you know, skateboarding yeah. in New Mexico. But I, I think um, I think uh, I think that's a that's a terrific, uh, just a realistic uh, kind of account of, of of human nature. And what we should do is uh, and I think the book is is aligned to that. And what we should do is rethink that as a proposition of our fundamental humanity and maybe change it to something like. You know, everybody, everybody needs to kind of take a step toward one another in a way that isn't about confiscating uh, uh, one another's um, lives and instead is about looking at our mutual healing 
healing of the world, which is something um, that many, many different religious and philosophical traditions uh, adhere to as a a core value um, of their, of their shared understanding. Okay. Uh, Last question. Um, Looking ahead, when, when is the book exactly available again? So June uh, 2024 is what we're imagining. And it will also, if you, if, if the viewer and listener wants to visit our website Mm -hmm. uh, at that time, it's uh, CEIE at, uh, sorry, it's seattleu.edu slash CEIE. And uh, you can go to our website. There will be uh, a, uh, a virtual canvas, uh, the walk along. Uh, uh, What am I thinking about? The, compendium that you can walk along and, and view the both the book you can order the book and there's also podcasts uh, from some of the authors and and conversational pieces and ways to study the text there's there's also um, a, a new course on seeking religious literacy where people could find out more about that and we have a certificate program I, I, re- I realize I'm turning this into a shameless plug for this no no, no no I mean I, I wanted to ask you what are your aspirations for the book but you know you're, you're starting to talk about that yeah that's it. I mean, I think what we have to do, all of us, my aspirations for the book and for the center are the same aspirations I hope we have for our lives. Mm. We want this to be a conduit possibility that helps people to learn and to become connected. And we want the center to be able to do that as well. So we have the book will be a part of new courses that are coming out. Uh, those courses will be a part of a summer institute that, that will become live in the summer of 2025. Uh, we are going to be welcoming cross-cohort learning. We'll be creating courses that uh, are going to be um, enhancing and healing our democracy. These are all the things that we want to be able, it's that kind of creative innovation that I would encourage to the listener and viewer. We're living by example too. And the book is a part of that kind of um, repository of hope that we very much want to be a part of in the world. Michael, it's always a delight to talk with you. I would like to thank you for today's conversations and and really would encourage people to, I mean, they can check out the website already now, but for sure do that in June when the book will be available for purchase. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you, Maurice, as ever, for your friendship and for your wisdom. Thank you for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.